times where you just don't want that to end. At least I don't want that to end, and so we could have gone a little longer. Hopefully that was encouraging to your soul to sing of the great praises of God. And um, So to me, some of the worst words in the English language are when a coach looks at you and says, get on the line. Does everybody know what that means? You're about to run until somebody throws up is what I tell the kid. I'm sure your coaches aren't as mean as me. But it's like, get on the line. Uh, and, and so as I was thinking about, like, what analogies would help us grasp what's going on in the text? Because this would be an easy text to, to feel guilty about or an easy text to misunderstand. And so um, I was thinking of some analogies. And I think there's two analogies that parallel each other really well. Uh, the analogy of a coach and the analogy of a parent. You know, pretty similar things. Uh, and, and so what you have to have is you've got to have in your mind, what do you want to create at the end of this preseason, at the end of the season, at the end of their career together? What do you want to create after they leave your home, right? And, and you realize that's going to involve a lot of instruction. It's going to involve a lot of teaching. It's going to involve a lot of modeling. You know, they've got to learn how to pick up forks. They've got to learn how to throw oatmeal all over the room. They've got to learn how to make messes. And for your players, they've got to learn that they don't know it all and that you know more and you can help them be better. And they have to learn new techniques and new things that take them to the next level of play. And so there's just these positive things you are investing in them and trying to form in them because you have a goal. Now, a lot of the challenge as parents and probably as coaches as well is like they may not have the same goal or they don't see what you see. They don't know where you're going. Hopefully you can try that. But that's one of the challenges, right, is I'm taking you somewhere, and you've got to trust me sometimes, even when it's hard. But then there's the times where it's hard. Like, get on the line and run until you throw up. You haven't done anything wrong, but you're going to need more stamina as the season gets on. You're going to need more stamina so that we protect you from injuries. And, and, and it's like when you're kids, it's like, you go clean your room. Well, but I want to go play with my friends. Go clean your room. You're not playing with your friends until so you clean the room. You're not in trouble. You just need to learn how to clean your room. You've got to learn how to be a responsible child with your environment because I want you to grow up and be a responsible child human being, right? You, see, there's things that are just hard, and you've got to make them do it. You've got to make them do their homework. I promise you, you don't understand why Algebra 2 is important, and most of us as adults don't either, but to get out of that class and get graduated from high school or college, Algebra 2 is important, so get your butt in there and study, right? So that's athletes and parents, by the way, right? Force that study hall on them. Because you're taking them somewhere. And so sometimes it's positive instruction. Sometimes it's just hard stuff that you know you have to make them do to push past their limits, to push past their boundaries, because you're wanting them to be something. But then there's times, man, they just flat blow it. You know, they stiffen their neck and they say no. And as parents, what comes next? Belt, wooden spoon, whatever your device of torture is. Because you love them enough to give them consequences because you don't want them to grow up and be a child that has no boundaries and, and, and no sense of the authority of the Lord in their life and no sense of what it's like to follow someone and what it's like to say, you don't say no. Sometimes the athletes, the same thing. And so we have to have as parents or coaches a, a training program to take people from where they are to where it is best for them to go, the best we can figure it out. I think that's what's happening in this text. As followers of Jesus, what is God up to in your life? And in the text, most specifically, what is God up to in your life when things are hard? 
What is he up to in your life when you face opposition? What is he up to in your life when life becomes really painful and you don't get it? He is forming something in you. He is taking you somewhere that is better. It's better than being comfortable. It's better than having what you want in any given moment. It's better than a life free of pain. The Father is taking you somewhere. The text is going to talk about that. In the sovereign hand of God, there is not a trial that enters your life that is not purposeful in the training program that he has to mold you into something, to mold you into the image of Christ at the end of the deal. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll, we'll pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we've gone a good ways through the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 10, we saw there is a great reward in keeping your confidence in Jesus. We saw that there is promises that are waiting for you at the end of this life that are so glorious and so wonderful that there's nothing in this life you can face that could compare to the glory that is coming at the end of it. And so what do you and I need right now? What do you and I need when life goes terribly wrong by our estimation? Endurance. Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 11. Cheerleaders that are now in the stand because they've run their race of faith They have finished their race. They have demonstrated what it's like to walk with God. And they are now cheering for those who are currently running their race. I did it. You can do it. I I faced it and kept going. You can face it and keep going. And then chapter 12, what does that mean for you and what does that mean for me? What does that mean for the believers he's writing the book of Hebrews to? Run your race. Your God-defined, God-given race with endurance. You need endurance to get to the promises. You need endurance. It's a great reward. Run your race with endurance. How do you run your race with endurance is what verses 1 and 2 talk about. Well, negatively, it means there are some weights that have accumulated in your life that are maybe good or maybe neutral, but they've just suctioned onto your life, and you're trying to run the marathon of life, or you're trying to swim the long-distance swim of your life with a weight vest on. It's really hard to endure when you've accumulated weights on top of yourself that make running harder. And so lay aside the weights. And then there's this thing called sin. Boy, I would love not to talk about sin. And if the Bible didn't talk about it so stinking much, I would delight to not talk about it so much. But there are sins that are like wet shirts that suck to your body and restrict your movement. And if you don't lay those aside, you will never run with the endurance it takes to run after Jesus with your life, negatively. But positively, how do we do this thing? Because it's not just don't do this and throw stuff away and don't do bad stuff and, and, and live this completely slimmed down, you know, miserable life, but at least, man, you are, you're in the boot camp. As you look to Jesus, the source of your faith, the author of your faith, and the perfecter of your faith who has secured your faith and will bring your faith home at the end. He started it, and he certainly will finish it. Look to Jesus who you can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Look to Jesus that is a better prize and a better treasure than all the accumulated stuff this world has to offer. And if you stare at Jesus and away from the other stuff that distracts you, you're going to run the race with endurance. Well, he's going to continue that same theme into the, the rest of chapter uh, 12. But here what he's doing is different. He is going to give you what is God up to? How is God working in your circumstances? And how is God working in your life to accomplish your run with endurance? 
And so run with endurance, it's all on you. No, run with endurance. God is up to purposeful stuff as your father, forming something in you that is better than if you were writing your own story in a way that was much easier and more comfortable. So let's look at it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, 3 through 11. Consider him, Jesus, that we have just looked at, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are legit, illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. So, Father, what you, the one and the only glorious God, what a glorious invitation. And I pray that it would be more than an invitation as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ right here. I pray people have caught fresh beholding of you in singing your praises. I pray that there are people here that don't know you and that their eyes would begin to be open and the veil of Satan that blinds the minds of unbelievers would begin to be torn off as they're invited to behold you instead. And I pray for those who are running and are weary and I pray for those who are running and are joyful that we would come and we'd behold you. And I pray in a service like this there would be fresh beholding. And we'd be changed because of it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's training program produces endurance and holiness. God's training program produces endurance and holiness. And so I was trying to think of a word, since discipline's all through the text, that didn't say God spanks you because he wants you to endure. I don't think that's what the text says. So God's training program. God, knowing where he wants to take you, has good and he has hard and he has consequences that he combines together with the perfect wisdom of God and the perfect sovereignty of God who knows all things, past, present, and future, every detail of your life, every galaxy that we will never see with our greatest telescopes and every molecule of the small, or the smallest atom that is in your body. And he knows all of it and he knows it right now. And so what's a good word? And so that was my best shot at it. He has a training program. He's making you something through a process, right? So let's look at that. Giving ongoing serious thought to Jesus keeps us from wearing out. Giving ongoing serious thought to Jesus keeps us from wearing out. 
This is not the first or last time you will hear this statement, nor is it original to me. It's a quote. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. And so why do you have the goofy accent that you have? Maybe I should say it this way. Why do I have the goofy accent that I have? Because I grew up in a home with parents, and I grew up in a location within this country to where I absorbed the accents and mannerisms of the people that were most influential to me. I didn't consciously think, I want to talk this way. Instead, I grew up and adopted the accent around me because you become what you behold. Maybe you have a really dear friend, and you all spend a lot of time together, and you have all these little inside jokes, and you're laughing, and everybody else is like, what are you doing? It's church. And you have all these little inside jokes, and you're like laughing, and everybody else is like super somber and serious. And you're like, what are you doing? Or you begin to spend all this time together, and you start kind of completing each other's sentences. And you, you start adopting the same mannerisms as each other, and your laughs start to mimic, or your accents start to mimic. And why? Because you become what you behold. You absorb things from people you admire. You absorb things from people you spend time with. You absorb things from from, from people that you respect or love. You become what you behold. And so the great battle of the Christian life, 2 Corinthians 3 talks about it, the great battle of the Christian life is what will we look at, right? So beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree of glory to another degree of glory until we reach glory and are perfected. We become like what we behold, So what will you stare at? You walk day to day in a world that has a million offerings that say, look here, you'll find satisfaction. That say, look here, man, I am a fun diversion. Look here, you'll find pleasure. Look here, I'm worth it. Look, look, look. And without even thinking about it, and without it even being that bad, because we don't go to the movie stores with those kind of movies. Well, you know, you don't go to movie stores anymore. Apologize, right? Stream those kind of movies, right? So it's, it's fine stuff to look at. But our gaze drifts off of Jesus and is continually pulled. And we continue to become to adopt the values of just having as much stuff as the people around me have. Just having the same kind of relationship that the people around me have. Just having the same kind of uh, material possessions that people around me have. Just having the same kind of values that people around me have. Because the people around me, you know, basically they're just about Christian. Because they're nice. At least that's how we think about it. You become like what you behold. Or will we stare at Christ? Will we stare at Christ? And if we stare at Christ, we become like what we behold. And so our goal and our purpose in life is to be formed in the image of Christ so that we put Christ on display. Like, that's why you exist. That's what you're about. If you want to live a life with any abundance, with any fullness, with any richness, with any life that's really life and not life that's just surviving and breathing and eating and sleeping to only wake up and do it again, the only way you'll experience life that is real life, other than the momentary distraction of some party or some pleasure or some pur- pur- purchase, the, the only way you'll experience life that is life is when you're continually resetting your eyes to behold Jesus. And the bad news about that is this. Very often it takes hardship, some challenge to wake up and reset our gaze back. I think that's some of what the text is going to talk about with us today. Let's look at it. So there is this untranslated four 
and maybe in your, your translation it's there, there's an untranslated four to begin this text, meaning it's linking us back to verse one and two and continuing the thought and giving some, some reasons and fleshing out of that. But the way it's constructed, and I'll save you the, the, the details, the way it's constructed actually comes together to, 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 to make it very emphatic. By all means, right? By any means necessary, what should we do? Consider him. The word for consider is to take serious thought of something. The word for consider is to put weighty thought on a matter that includes reflection. I need to stir this over a bunch. It even includes the shade of an idea called comparison. And so I'm comparing it to other things until ultimately I come to a conclusion at the end of it. And so when we're asked to consider Jesus, we're asked to think seriously and deeply and soberly and to reflect on Jesus and to reflect on what he's done and to continually pour that into our heart, mind, and gaze and then put Jesus up against something else and to do that as long as it takes until you reach a conclusion at the end. So what should you compare Jesus to? Well, in the context, I I think there's two things in the context. Consider Jesus' suffering. Reflect on the suffering of Jesus so that when you reflect on yours, you will realize fitting underneath the suffering of Jesus, your suffering is not as extreme as his. And you might be like, but he's God and I'm not. He's much more equipped to deal with that than I am. Well, I don't think that's probably the best answer we can come up with. But as we think about, okay, God spent, or Jesus spent eternity in heaven face to face with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The the Word, Jesus, was face to face with God for all of eternity. And then when created beings came into the world and there were angels, he lived in the unceasing praises of angels for all of eternity. And to even put his little toe on a sin-cursed earth is beyond our comprehension to think about why would he touch that which defiles so badly but he did. And what was his life like? Well, to sum it up, Isaiah gave us just a really simple sentence. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. If, if you were defining the life or experience of Jesus, what would that definition be? He faced untold sorrow and untold grief, so much so that that would be the best description of his experience in this world. And if it was not enough that these petulant little religious leaders come and question him and mock him and berate him and slander him, if that wasn't enough, then they give him over to the Romans and he is beaten with a whip to the place where there is probably not one piece of skin left on his back intact. And if that's not enough, then they go and march him and they put a crown of thorns on his head. It's both to embarrass him, he's not a king, he just claims it, and it's torture. It's like a six-inch spike in his head. And if that wasn't enough, they stripped him naked and they put him on a cross for all people to mock and ridicule and be completely exposed to them while he died in the most painful way imaginable. Consider him who endured that who now lives in you to empower you to endure whatever. And in a few verses, he's going to compare that. But what else? When it comes to a reflection and a comparison that ultimately comes to a conclusion, what else would you compare Jesus to? And I would say the call of the text is to compare him to anything that you're losing, because they are losing. Compare him to the social status that you're losing in, in this opposition where your community is isolating you. You've got social outcast, Jesus. You've got maybe losing your business. Lose your business, Jesus. 
Maybe you have your family kick you out. Whose family? Jesus. Compare him to the treasures of your life. Put Jesus beside the treasures of your life and then do a thoughtful evaluation. What's the most valuable thing? What's worth it? Anything or Jesus. And I think he would say the same thing to us. Put your business success up. What's more valuable, that or Jesus? Put a great house with like four or five bedrooms and brick. Jesus, what's best? Put your social standing or Jesus best. Put your social media presence that is so wonderfully filtered and beautiful and your looks or Jesus, what's best? What's most valuable? And let's answer the question once and for all till we come to a conclusion. What is most valuable to me? Is it Christ or is it anything else? But you don't understand how cute he is. And I know cute's not the word you use. It's like doing the best I can here. Like, you don't understand how cute he is. You don't understand. She's beautiful and she likes me. I know that's amazing, dude. I know it's a shocker even. But that or Jesus. And you've got to put enough thought into that set of comparisons until you come to a conclusion. You know why that's important? Because the heart of every trial or hardship or whatever word we use is this. You're losing something. Now you may be losing respect or you may be losing physical property, but you're losing something. And so if you're going to run with endurance in the face of loss, what would it do if you're like, but I have Christ who is infinitely valuable and he can't be taken from me. He secured me. I haven't secured myself to him. And so, yes, I'm losing, but in comparison... That loss hurts, but it doesn't devastate. Does that make sense? Compare until you come to a conclusion of the worth of Jesus in your life. And if he's not worth it, don't play. And if he's worth it, go all in. Consider Jesus till you come to a conclusion of the value of Jesus once and for all in your life. And what's going to happen if you do that? You won't grow weary. You'll be able to endure because what is most valuable never gets threatened. What is the richest treasure in your life never can be depleted. And so you think about it this way. Like, if I have a million bucks, and I don't. If I had a million bucks, and I lost $1,000 in the stock market, how much sleep am I going to lose? Not any, really. That's nothing compared to what I have. If I have $1,500, and I lose 1000 in the stock market, how much sleep am I going to lose? If you have the most precious treasure in all the universe, it hurts to lose things still, but it only hurts in a better comparison to what you really have that's secure. And so you won't grow weary. You won't grow faint of heart. You won't quit when things are hard. And then he finishes the other side of the equation, right? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the shedding of your blood. And so... Consider Jesus who endured hostility from sinners that went everything from questioning and slander to death. And then consider your own suffering within that parameters. Not to say it isn't real, but to say it is proportionate. You have not yet resisted to the point where your blood is shed. And so they are facing a persecution that is social. And they're facing a persecution that may be material. But they're not facing an opposition that involves their life. And that's what the author is saying here. But that's just one of his points. Do you see? It connects to something else. And remember this, because you are a bunch of spiritual amnesiacs. You forget God and what he has done so easily, and the horrible thing is I do too. 
I study this for a living, and I forget. Like, today, blessed, joyful, got everything I wanted as an answer to prayer, and it's victorious, and then tomorrow, like, I'll stub my toe and whine for a week, right? We forget what God has done, and I don't mean to make light of stuff that really hurts. I'm just saying we, we forget so easily, but look what he forgets. He addresses you as sons, and that'll bleed us into the next point. But, but that's the point he's trying to make is God addresses you in a certain way is the, the next thing. And so if you behold something in this world, your life will always be unstable. If you behold a relationship that looks like blank or that even I have a relationship, and that's what matters most, you'll always be disappointed. They can't live up to it. Or if you behold enough money or more money, or more stuff. Well, what good's money going to do if like, your kids go off the rails? Or what good is money going to do when your health diagnosis comes? All the money in the world can't buy you an extra day. It's prone to shake. It will be destabilizing. What about our looks? We have so many treatments to make sure our looks are right. So many treatments to stay young. And you've seen some of them that went horribly wrong. And you don't look young anymore. Sorry. That's, forget I said that. But if I trust in my looks, there is no amount of procedures that is ultimately going to keep me from aging. There is no way to permanently reverse the process of we get older, we get slower, and these looks will give out someday. But if I live for Jesus, the eternal Son of God who has redeemed me and secured me, and I'll see him one day and become like him, then my life can be stable even when things in my life are not. And that's the offer of God's grace. And so the first thing we see is giving ongoing serious thought to Jesus keeps us from wearing out. Secondly, reframing our perspective on trials can cement our assurance of God's fatherly love for us. Refraining, uh, reframing our perspective on trials can cement our assurance of God's fatherly love. And so I want you to think about it because I am sure you have faced some level of hardship. What does a hardship tempt you to think about God? Right? The psalmist will talk about it. He's like, God, will you forget me forever? What was the psalmist's interpretation of his troubles? God has forgot I even exist and I'm on my own. He'll say, will you keep your anger forever, the psalmist says. Right? Let's put it in his words because they're inspired instead of the ones you might use because it's probably really similar. God, have I just made you so angry that you're never going to stop being mad at me? Is it going to be Forever. And we're tempted to think that. We're tempted to think we're on our own. We're tempted to think he isn't good. We're tempted to think he's really mad at me because I've blown it. We're tempted to think he is one step away from cutting me loose because I've blown it so many times. And so think about if, if, if your reality is life is hard, which means God has left or God is mad, how big is that trial going to become in your life? Like monumental and crushing, right? You're on your own in the face of hardship that there's no way out of and no way around and there is no resources to help you but yours. But what if you were to change the perspective to the perspective of the text? And instead of it being God left me, it is that very hardship that shouts to me my identity as a son of God. It's that very trial that shouts to me that I am loved, and so trials are exclamation points of God's love, not a sign of his absence. What if that were the case? Would it make it not hurt? No. Would it make it not hard? 
No. But would it take the size and the pain of my trial and put it into a different perspective? Would it resize it to the size it actually is instead of a size that will crush me? Yeah. So let's look at it as we go into the text. He quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. Uh, and that's, that's the quotations you're seeing in, in this text. And there's four statements, so kind of listen out. Listen out for those. Um, and so he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Statement one, don't despise, don't regard lightly, don't think it is an unimportant thing for God to discipline you. Two, nor be weary when reproved by him, right? Same thing before, don't grow weary because you're considering Jesus and what he's done in your life. Don't be weary when you have to be corrected by the Lord. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Statement three, you are one that he loves and his discipline and what you're facing in life right now is a demonstration of his love for you that secured you and is taking you somewhere, not his absence. What's the last statement? He chastises every son that he receives. When I have a father that loves me enough to take me somewhere, even when it's hard and pushes me beyond my boundaries, when I have a father that loves me enough to take me somewhere, even when that includes like punitive discipline, consequences for my actions, what does it say? He hasn't left me. He's up to something in me, and he's taking me somewhere. Does it make it easy? No. Does it give it a perspective, and does it give a hope? Yes. Right? And so as we look at the text, in this part of the text, he's going through, and he's cementing your identity. Right? And he's giving a different perspective on trials in the middle of this. Right? Don't despise his discipline. Why? Think about he's speaking personally scripture. My son. God is speaking. My son. Don't despise my discipline. God is speaking to you as a father or a child. He's cementing in you your identity. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. You are mine. Over and over and over. So look at it. Like we'll go through it in the text here. Have you forgotten that he addresses you as sons? Verse 5. Verse 5 again. My son, do not regard um, lightly. Verse 6, he chastises every son. Verse 6, he disciplines the one he loves. It is for discipline that God you have to endure. In verse 7, God is treating you as sons. For what son does a father not discipline? Do you get the point yet? Because he needs to say it this many times so that you don't miss it. Because your trials tempt you to lose your identity. That God has left you. They tempt you to lose your identity. I am a child of God and there is nothing in this life and there's nothing in eternity and there's nothing in the past and there's nothing in the present and there's nothing in the future. There is nothing angelic. There is nothing physical. There is not a height or a depth or anything else in all creation that can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's good news. You're a son. You're a son. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're a daughter. You're a daughter. And nothing about this trial changes that. Instead, what this trial says is, I'm still up to stuff in your life. And I promise you, the end is better than what you would get on your own. And if we would think that way, would we run with endurance? If we realized God was purposeful and wise and sovereign, would we run with endurance and embrace the hardship of our lives? Not, not loving it, but embracing it. So that it would accomplish what God wants to accomplish in our lives. And so it reframes our perspective to what? You're a son. That's your identity. In fact, if you don't have any discipline in your life, what happens? You're an illegitimate child. You have no claim on the family name. You're not a son. Right? And so we have a question in the text that we have to answer then. What does he mean by discipline? 
right? Is this text a text of punitive consequences of discipline in our lives, right? Is this like God spanking us? Is it correction? And that's why I use the main point I did. It's a training program. It's a training program that involves instruction and positive and, and encouragement and, and, and able to rejoice in the Lord always and, and gives the word of God as our counsel, our guide, gives us the community of faith. It's positive stuff that he's doing. But there's also hard stuff like, you know, clean your room and get on the line and run. And there's hard stuff. And then, yes, I would be remiss if I didn't say there are times that God disciplines. And so what I would say is like these two framing perspectives in John chapter 15, Jesus says, every branch in me that bears fruit, that means you're doing good stuff, you're doing it right. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he takes the cutters and chops it in half. He prunes. Why? So that it might bear more fruit. And that that fruit would ultimately be to the glory of God the Father. And so his fruit to the glory of God the Father a valuable enough thing to be formed in your life that pruning in the wise hand of God, cutting only what is necessary back, can be received. Or there's times he chastises. There are times that he corrects. And the text tells us very clearly, he's not correcting you to get his anger out. Like, you know, we do as parents sometimes when we really blow it and we spank our kids because we're just so mad that this is like makes me feel good. He didn't do it that way. He does it because the exact measure of consequences is exactly what's needed to drive from you something and drive you to something. And so all of those things are happening because you're his son and because he loves you. And so when he uses discipline, the root word of discipline is child. And so it means to raise a child. It means to discipline virtue into their lives. And so you think about how we shape children and how we shape players as we're disciplining something into their lives. And that's not all bad. That's a lot positive and negative and hard. So, reframing our perspective on trials can cement our assurance of God's fatherly love in our lives. And so I want you to think back to the last time you faced a trial. And I want you to think back, like, what were you thinking? What were the thoughts that you, you shoved to the corner of your mind because you're like, I'm not supposed to think that about God? Or the thoughts you shoved to the corner of your mind because that's not a good Christian response. I'm not going to think that or feel that. Right? And then I want you to think, if you knew that in the middle of that trial, these two things were true, how would it change? Again, we're resizing pain. We're not eliminating pain. That won't happen till heaven. We're resizing pain. And so if you were to instead think, in the middle of this trial, my identity as a son of God, or daughter of God, is absolutely unchanged. His love for me is more evident because he hadn't quit on me than it is if everything went great. And so I, I'm a child of his and he loves me. How would that change your experience of what you faced? How would that change your experience of what you were faced? Uh, Jacob read at the beginning all these verses I have written down. I would look them up. Right? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And it's more miserable to go astray than it is to go with God. And so the gracious hand of God afflicted me. Why? Because now I keep his statutes. You're good, God, and you do good, God. And I'm walking into bad, and I'm walking into misery when I'm walking away from you, and so afflict me because I need you. Okay. And so how would it change? How would it resize pain 
if we viewed it the right way, if we saw what God was up to. Last step. Responding well to trials unlocks their maximum benefit in our lives. Responding well to trials unlocks their maximum benefit in your life. Now, you may be shocked to know this, so I'll tell you anyways. There are times that people would talk bad about me. I know you can't believe that, and I know you would never do that, right? But there's times it happens, and you know what? That probably happens to you too. Cannot control it. Can't do anything about it. But you know what I can do? What can I control? Chris's response to being talked about poorly. I can't control my spouse. If we're having challenges in the moment, I can't control how she's responding to me, how she's talking to me, how he's responding to you, how he's talking to you. Can't control it. What can I control? My response to them. I can't control when people treat me poorly. I can't control my past in ways I've been abused or neglected or rejected or betrayed. I can't control any of that. I can't control victimhood I've faced. I can't control any of that. Am I powerless then to my circumstances and experiences to live this way forever? Or by grace, through faith, in the goodness of God in my life, am I empowered to respond differently in a way that taps me into the experience of God? that is greater than, and it's doing something in me more than living as a victim of other people. Because if your well-being hinges on the people around you, accepting you, the looks you have, and being affirmed for them, or the marriage you're in, and, and its goodness or its badness, or the money you have, whether it's a lot or little, just think about it. Your well-being will never be settled. But if your well-being is attached if it's attached to God, if it's attached to what he's up to in our life, if I am now empowered by grace through faith to live differently regardless of what's around me and to have peace and joy settled in me regardless of what happens to me, then all kinds of empowerment is in my life by the grace of God instead of being controlled by things I can't control. So look at it in the text. He wants us to respond a certain way because God is up to a certain thing. There's a result God is after. And that's the, the way the text ends. And so look at it. And so he gives this earthly analogy. We have fathers. Some were better than others. But let's take the best father we can think of. He is a sinful man doing the best he can, who has us for a set amount of time, and he disciplines us to a way that seems right. Meaning, it could be right, it could be wrong, it's probably mixed, it's probably not perfectly pure, but he's trying to take us somewhere that's good, but he does it the way that seems best to him, and how do we respond? We respect fathers like that, we become like fathers like that, we, we um, obey fathers like that, to some degree at least, and so we are formed into what he's trying to form us into, we respect them enough to become like what they're trying to mold us into. Now, the other side of the analogy, God, who is not imperfect, who is not limited in his knowledge, who, who isn't quite sure how he's supposed to do this or where he's supposed to take you, but he knows precisely, the all-wise God knows exactly what he wants to do in your life and exactly what it takes to get there. What does it say? God disciplines us for our good. It's truly good. It's truly right. It's truly best. It is the best thing you can possibly get. And so he disciplines you to get you to the best result possible. How should you respond to discipline like that? How should you respond to a training program like that? Be subject to it. Because you can respond 
different ways to trials, right? You can stiffen your neck under it and you can become bitter and angry because it's not fair and it's not. You're justified. But self-justification will not bring you satisfaction. Nobody cares but you that you're justified yourself, right? And so you can be embittered and you can be self-righteous and, and the world's against you and you're a victim and everything's wrong but you. You can respond that way. Or you can receive the discipline of the Lord. You can embrace its purposes in your life while grieving what it's costing you to get there and maintain a relationship with the Lord that's taking you somewhere. You can subject yourself to it. You can receive it. Let me tell you something. Here's the thing about bitterness. It takes a temporary problem and makes it a permanent attitude. It takes a temporary problem and makes it a permanent attitude. And when you become embittered, there is no part of your life and no relationship you're a part of that is not colored by that bitterness. And so you've taken an area of your life, however big and painful it is, and colored your whole life with it. That's not the way to respond to your trials. Receive them in humility. Receive them as from the good hand of God. And then walk through them with God by your side. So you don't do it alone. Right? And so... That's what God is up to, or that's, that's a response. Will I respect and submit to it? But what's the point? What's the result? Why is this text here? What is God up to in your life ultimately? That you may share in his holiness. You may share in his holiness. Your sole reason for existing is to become like God so that you reflect what God is like to the world around you. We call it glorify. Your sole reason for existing is the glory of God increasingly showing up in your life and then increasingly being shown to the world around you so that your brothers and sisters in Christ increasingly get taste of God because your life is a part of their life. And the people that don't know Jesus around you are increasingly confronted with the majesty and justice and grace of God by your life. You, you've got this mirror shining God into their faces over and over and over again. That's why you exist. And so it should be the burning desire of your heart that you share in his holiness. And you're like, great, holiness. Well, that's boring. And then I'm going to get to heaven and sit on a cloud with an angel and strum a harp. That's boring too. Oh, man, you've missed it. You've missed it. That's not what it is. Heaven is seeing Jesus and being so amazed by Jesus that you're changed to be more like Jesus for all of eternity. And when he says, in my presence is the fullness of joy, for all of eternity, your capacity joy will go up because you filled it up, and your experience of joy will go up. And there will never be a moment for eternity where you don't have capacity for more joy and experience more joy, and we have no conception of what's that like. I have no conception of what a joy that doesn't fade by the time I'm tired at 9 o'clock to go to bed. I have no conception of a joy that doesn't last for about 30 minutes after a big win. I have no conception of joy that lasts beyond a certain amount of time, like as your kids are born or, or you're, you're getting engaged or whatever big moment happens in your life. Joy always fades, except for in heaven. And God is sharing, and I'm going to partake in his holiness it will ultimately get me to the place where joy is forever multiplied because it will always expand itself. And so, they exist glorify God and share in his holiness. Jesus says it this way in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
there is a starving hunger in the soul of every human being, but especially in the soul of every believer in Jesus Christ. There is a starving hunger for a righteousness that we don't have. Oh, as believers, we have it, but don't experience it fully yet. We starve uh, that pain in your stomach because the preacher might go past 12 again. But multiply that because you missed dinner too, and multiply that because you missed a few days of food. There's a starvation in the Christian soul for righteousness. There's a starvation in the lost soul for righteousness. That's why they have to justify themselves. They want it too. And then there's a thirst, like I have been out working in the yard and I forgot to drink water and my tongue is literally glued into my mouth and I can barely open it up because there is a starvation and a thirst for righteousness. And we try so hard to get it somewhere else. We try so hard to eat and satisfy ourselves in the junk food of the world and the junk food of our own self-righteousness and the junk food of my works and my deeds that I know aren't good enough. And yet, life that is blessed only comes from hungering for righteousness. So look at the end of the text as we wrap up. A crop is formed when God operates through a loving training program in your life. A crop grows as we imperfectly embrace and and let God's purposes work in our lives in trials. What is the crop? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God formed something in me, an entire field of righteousness to feast on whenever I desire it. The longing of my soul that is the true longing of my soul, and it's not what you are going for. It's what God has for you. The true hunger of my soul is met as I walk through, not away, from the hard stuff in life. Knowing I'm loved by God, knowing I'm his child, right in the middle of it. Let's look at a few practical things as we, as we wrap up. It's not even 12 yet. Aren't y'all impressed? You will get to beat the Methodist to wherever it is you're going to eat after church. I don't say restaurants anymore because then you all show up there and the only thing you remember from my sermons is Zaxby's. You know, this, this segment is brought to you by... Um, sorry. Got some allergies going on. We're going to... Strike some things from the record if our AV team would work hard on that. Um, so, what competes with Christ as the treasure of your life? What competes with Christ as the treasure of your life? Right. Sit down long enough to bring it up beside, like put Christ on a stage and then bring your treasure up beside him. And think about it long enough. Reflect on it deep enough. Compare it close enough till you come to a conclusion of what is ultimately What's ultimately valuable. And so what competes? Second, what are some wrong views you have about God and yourself? Maybe by trials, maybe you think about your past and some of the things you've experienced. Maybe it's in the present and it hurts. What are some things you are tempted to think that are wrong about you, right? That are wrong about you or worse, that are wrong about God. Because when we think rightly about God, the size of pain becomes the right size. Right? And that's, that's what's going to help us run with endurance. So what, do you, what, do you, what are some wrong views you, you've accumulated? And then lastly, how do you generally respond to challenges? How do you generally respond to challenges? Now, God graciously like, has made my tongue slower over the years. Because generally, if you uh, have something sharp to say to me, I am really good at coming back with something sharp in return. 
And so how do I respond? And then you ask yourself this question, does it make it better or worse? So if my wife comes in and she's mad and she said, and she never would, but if she, if she did and she came and she just really gave it to me on some things I had failed on. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been waiting for this one. You did this last week and this last month and this last year and this and this and this. I might be right. Probably not. Is it going to make it better or worse? Am I going to look more like Jesus at the end of it? Is our relationship going to honor the Lord more at the end of it? No. So I'm going to feel better for about 10 seconds until the Holy Spirit does his work. Right? And so how do you normally respond to challenges? Because the way you respond can amplify the challenge or it can tone down the challenge. You can't remove it, but it can amplify it or tone it down. How are you responding? Is it helping or is it hurting? So God's training program. Oh, it's so gracious, isn't it, when it's still waters and green pastures? God's training program, isn't it so amazing when he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake? It's so peaceful. But there's a lot more to that psalm and there's a lot more to God and what he's up to in our life. There's times that it's so heartbreakingly hard because he wants to push us beyond where we're comfortable and push us beyond where we're stuck because what's on the other side is better. And then there's times where God, like a good father, loves us enough to take us out and discipline us because it's disciplining and correcting and, and even rebuking at times. It steers us back to the path of life and away from the path of death. The greatest joy you'll ever have in this life is following Jesus Christ. The greatest misery you'll ever have in this life is following your own ways. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name...